Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Last episode of Human Eyes, I interviewed Jennifer Law, director of the Detransition Diaries, which documents the stories of three young women who received what is often called gender-affirming care. That interview focused mostly on the radical, body-altering interventions that children who question their sex too often receive. In this follow-up interview, we are going to take a broader look at gender ideology more generally and how the West has become so caught up and what I consider to be a moral panic that has seen an explosion of both adult and child cases of gender dysphoria. My guest, friend, and colleague, J. Wesley Richards, Ph.D., is an analytic philosopher who focuses on the intersection of politics, philosophy, and religion. He is director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family and the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in Religious Liberty and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. He is also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and executive editor of The Stream. Jay is author or editor of more than a dozen books. He is also creator and executive producer of several documentaries, including three that have appeared widely on PBS. Jay's articles and essays have been published in the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Washington Post, the New York Post, Newsweek, Forbes, Fox News, and many other publications. Jay has appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs, including CBS Evening News, MSNBC, Fox and Friends, PBS, CBN, TBN, and is a regular guest on EWTN. An experienced public speaker, he has spoken at academic conferences, college and university campuses in the United States, Europe, and Asia, and on several occasions to members of the U.S. Congress and U.S. congressional staff. Jay, welcome to Humanize. Thanks, Wesley. Good to be with you. Good to have you. You know, what is an analytical philosopher and what got you interested in pursuing that field? (laughs) Analytic philosophy is the the sort of split in philosophy now between so-called continental philosophy and analytic philosophy. And you can think of analytic philosophy as this strand of philosophy, especially popular in sort of Anglo-American 
circles that focuses on the logical structure of arguments. So a lot of focus on language, on the validity of arguments and things like that. And there's a, a sort of flourishing of it um, in the latter part of the 20th century. And that was actually my main exposure was actually that. And I was interested in it, honestly, because analytic philosophy, it's like a Swiss army knife. You can do almost anything with it. If you know how to analyze arguments and the structure of arguments, um, you can be a parasite on all the other disciplines, which it turns out is what I wanted to do. <laughs> so honestly, it gives you the ability to, because everybody engages in arguments or presumably in, in almost any discipline. And so I have, as you know, we've known each other for a long time. I, I have ranged across different sort of traditional academic disciplines, whereas academia encourages you to stay locked in your silo for, for 40 years, get tenure and just keep kind of digging that hole deeper and deeper. Um, I was much more interested in pursuing kind of boundary questions that crop up in in different disciplines. So honestly, analytic philosophy was terrific, though uh, I had to learn how to write for normal people because analytic philosophy has a, a highly specialized kind of <laughs> way of writing that is very inaccessible unless you're in on the track. You know, you've engaged several different aspects of culture and public policy, but you recently turned almost your entire focus onto the transgender issue. Why do you think that's such an important field of concern? Well, it strikes at the heart of what it means to be human. I mean, I have people ask me what holds my my ideas together, and I'd say, well, there's sort of two convictions. One, the universe and everything in it exists for a purpose, and you can discern that with reason. And so, in other words, it's that's not just a sort of claim of special revelation. That's something we can actually discern with reason. And the second idea is that humans are irreducible wholes that are greater than the sum of our parts and so should be treated as such and that has major implications so if you have utilitarianism or materialism or reductionism it's going to have major effects and in uh it, the the gender wars this this fight over gender ideology we are striking at the heart of our embodied humanity human beings made as male and female these complementary creatures it takes exactly one fertile male and one fertile female in order to reproduce after our kind gender ideology strikes at the very heart of that and, and honestly i mean it involves teaching children that they might be born in the wrong body and the way to fix that is to transform their body with drugs and scalpel rather than adjusting their minds to their bodies and so once i realize that it was probably abigail schreer's book irreversible damage that kind of caused it something to snap in me but my friend ryan anderson uh wrote a terrific book called when harry became sally and he did this years ago when he was here he was in my position at the heritage foundation where i am now and I thought at the time, I think I even told him, you know, there need to be more backs to distribute the arrows that you're <laughs> receiving on this. And um, honestly, I was perfectly happy. I was teaching at Catholic University, and then Ryan left to become the William or the uh, the president of Ethics and Public Policy Center. And my daughter, younger daughter, reminded me that, oh yeah, I remember you had said you wanted to get into that fight. And so I, that's sort of the, the, the long and the short of it is I applied for a position because Heritage is focusing on this. There's actually only a few think tanks that uh, are dealing with it. And I just couldn't get it out of my head that this somebody needed to really focus on this. Yeah, it's so very I, interesting. Um, you've done a lot of work on various issues, as we mentioned. Have you ever seen one as volatile as this one? No, not at all. I mean, and honestly, it's really hard to talk about this without – um, without the conversation turning towards things metaphysical because it is so 
absolutely unbelievable. And I, I mean, the, a lot of the people that I deal with, first of all, so-called detransitioners, so maybe people that were kids that uh, started having their bodies altered and then realized it was a mistake. Parents whose children are going through this. In my case, I don't have a, a personal stake in it. No one in my family or my friend group is actually dealing with it, but it just seems so obviously outrageous. This seems to me, this is like the eugenics a century ago in which all the commanding heights of culture, all the official groups, even the Supreme Court thought it was a good idea, and it was an absolute atrocity. That that's what this feels like. And so the level of anger and hostility involved, it probably does require a special kind of person to be on the front lines, frankly, on this, because it, it really is crazy. And you have to be willing to have people say really awful things to you and about you and not really care. And for some reason, I'm missing that gene. Um, where you probably are too. I don't really care if certain people hate me. It does not cost me any sleep. I, I um, hadn't thought about the eugenics connection, but I, I think it's quite apt, both in terms of how at one time eugenics was, you know, super science, right? Yeah. And secondly, the incredible destruction that eugenics caused, and I and I think is being caused by this gender ideology. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of that issue. Yeah. What the heck is gender ideology? Okay, so this is the analytic philosopher speaking. Gender right. ideology is the denial of of the sexual binary as a feature of reality and its replacement with an entirely internal and subjective sense called gender identity. It's independent of the body. And that's the thing people have a hard time getting. They think, well, okay, we talk about gender as your idea and sex as what your body is. No, that's not the, that's not the claim. Remember, gender ideologues will not talk about biological sex. They want to talk about sex assigned at birth. So everything gets thrown up for grabs so that sex ends up being a pure social construction. And the thing you really are is this psychological self-detached from your body. That is how radical this is. And until people quite realize that's how radical it is, they don't, they don't really realize what's at stake. So basically they're denying science, aren't they? That biology is innate. Yeah. I mean, they're denying science or they're clearly denying the deliverances and the evidence of science. We, um, I, I don't want to imply that you have to be a, a PhD in natural science to know what a boy and a girl are obviously you don't um but science understands really really well that mammals are a sex species there are exactly two gametes there are two uh gametes bodily, being, gametes being the, the, the organs that we use to reproduce so you could actually define male and female in terms of gametes so a, a male is uh is a member of the species that whose body is organized under normal developmental conditions, so that at some point during his life, he will produce relatively small mobile gametes. We call those sperm. A female is an individual in the species uh, who, under normal development, will uh, produce large, relatively immobile gametes. We call those eggs or ova. And it takes one of each, right, together to produce a new human organism. There's no third gamete. There are disorders of sexual development in which development doesn't go the way it, it, it should. Um, but that there's no third gamete out there. And so we have two sexes. They are binary in that sense. And all the nonsense that you hear on social media and from official uh, so speakers uh, claiming to speak on behalf of science are just defi defying uh, what every biology student would have learned until a few years ago. 
You know, I did a little research for this interview, and I was surprised to read that there are supposedly seven sexes instead of two. And of course, sometimes it was five, sometimes yep. it was six, but let, let's go over some of these. Yep. First is female, which I think you just identified, mm -hmm. uh, which has uh, egg or ova. Second is male, which produce sperm. Mm -hmm. And of course, have those those sexes have different genitalia and so forth and right. different attributes sex That's right. and different secondary sex characteristics and yeah, so forth. Yeah, the whole organism speaking. is sort of organized around this. Yep. Then a third was called intersex. Right. Uh, and I believe that's what you were talking about mm -hmm. where there might be a pathology uh, in terms of development. Is that right? That's right. And intersex is really a, a terrible word because it implies that you're between one of the sexes. And so what you can have is you can have um, endocrine problems. So for instance, if your body is resistant to testosterone, so you're sort of chromosomally a male, uh, but your body's resistant to testosterone, you will not develop the normal male sexual characteristics um, or different arrangements of chromosomes. Notice I didn't define sex in terms of chromosomes. Under normal development, a male will be XY and a female will be XX, but there are very rare exceptions to that. And people that you first get into this, they think you can just define it in terms of chromosomes. It's not quite right. But these are not different sexes. Again, these are disorders of sexual development that happen for various, fortunately, very, you know, it's very rare, um, but they don't produce a third gamete. That's the key thing. And that's and, how and, we understand. And we've that. known about intersex for a long time, and it's Absolutely. never been anything other than a medical issue it's a medical not only is it a medical issue it's a rare one and it has absolutely nothing to do with gender ideology so it's not as if you know these the, um uh, men presenting as women for instance um if you were to go okay well, well they must have one of these other uh disorders of sexual development look caitlin jenner doesn't have a disorder of sexual development uh caitlin jenner's a biological male that you know decided to transition as an adult and so that's why the problem is is that gender ideologues use disorders of sexual development they use people that have these conditions as cover for what they're doing which is a completely different thing and frankly a lot of them you go to the intersex website it's what it's still called a lot of those folks actually really upset about it they don't want to get dragged into this ideological battle right the fourth one according to the research i did is called trans mm -hmm. and i assume that's transgender yeah so trans in this case would be a, a someone who I'll just speak in their language. So someone assigned male at birth who, who identifies as female or vice versa. That's the idea. Yeah. And this idea of assigned at birth, who's doing the assigning? Yeah. So the assigning ends up being the doctor or the whoever's around at the time of the birth, right? And so you get the idea. It's not that they are looking and saying, okay, the child seems to have developed normally. This is a boy or this is a girl. Um, rather, they just sort of assign it based upon these impressions. But because the, the doctor doesn't know the person, the baby's internal gender identity, you have to wait until he or she could speak to ask. You just have to assign it. But again, notice that your sex is what you would think of as the stable thing, biological sex, ends up being a social construction. And the next one is non-conforming. Yeah. So non-conforming is anyone that's atypical, which is kind of silly. I mean, and here's the a problem. Atypical in what sense? Atypical in the gender sense so or in the sex sense. So it's certainly true. Um, on the one hand, that you can have overly rigid stereotypes so that if a girl plays with trucks, you say, well, she must not be a girl. No, she's just atypical. But the, the sex, I think of it as the kind of the social characteristics of boys and girls, they fall out uh, along a bell curve. So they're 
sex or gender typical things that most boys like or that most girls like, but there's also outliers out on the thin tails of the curve so that a girl can be atypical for her sex, like playing with trucks, not liking dolls or whatever. That doesn't make her a boy. It just makes her atypical for her sex. Um, and so g- gender nonconforming, for th- that's not another sex. It's not another gender. It just means that you're sort of an outlier. And this, and what's funny is that um, we're supposedly in this age where we don't think people have to conform to rigid stereotypes, and yet gender ideology reinforces the most extreme gender stereotypes so that a girl playing with Legos can actually be a sign that she's really a boy. I mean, nobody in the 19th century with rigid gender stereotypes was ever that wacky to say that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was thinking as, as this stuff has been uh, developing, when I was a little boy, I used to play a game where I would, I'd put a blanket over my head and I would pretend to be a little old lady and I'd go up to my mother and I'd say, I'm just a little old lady. And we'd have a conversation like I was a little old lady. Mm -hmm. It was just a game, but I could just imagine if somebody saw me doing that today, they'd say, oh my gosh, maybe he's trans. (laughs) No, exactly. It's like, I I thank God that I'm a Gen Xer and didn't have to process any of this stuff as a kid. (laughs) The next one is personal. Okay. And so personal in this context usually just means that it's someone that has their own personal gender identity. So in other words, but you know, they're talking about supposedly talking about sex here. So I saw a a video of a, a, a young girl actually who called herself triangle. And what she meant by triangle was that she had these three different gender identities, but it wasn't gender fluid. It's not like it varied through time. She was equally one third, one third, one third, male, female, and non-binary. And that's non-binary is where you're neither. (laughs) You figure this out. You're both male, female, and neither, right? So I could tell you that in analytic philosophy, that would be, that's not a thing. That, that, that's a logical contradiction, but you know. (laughs) And finally, and, and, uh, I've only recently learned about this aspect of this whole field, eunuch. Yes. And so this is terrifying. So obviously a eunuch would be someone that's asexual effectively, though a eunuch, strictly speaking, is a male who's been castrated. Um, this cropped up in the WPATH guidelines. So WPATH is this world or supposed world organization speaking for transgender health. It's, a, of course, a self-selected ideological organization that pushes this stuff. It's led. Its president is a is a a man who's tra- you know has transitioned to be a, to be appear as a woman, um, and in their most recent guidelines, just issued a few weeks ago, they said eunuch was a gender identity. Now, under pressure, um, I think they may have removed that, but they were just saying what was already out there in the literature and in the culture. And so, you can actually—you've written about this, Wesley—you could actually have a thing now where, rather than taking a girl and creating simulacra of you know, male organs, you have nullification surgery. So in the case of a boy, you just take off his penis and his testicles and kind of sew them up, um, make him look like a, you know, Barbie doll underneath her pants or, or whatever. That's, that's what we're talking about. And, so, and, and to girls too. And, and to girls too, right? So in that case, you're sewing things up, right? You're not so much cutting stuff off as you're sewing things up. Um, this is so ghoulish, but in some ways, um, remember, we're not reducing them to the absurd this is what they claim right they're, they're making eunuch a gender identity and it is in some ways a perfect illustration of gender 
ideology because people will say, well, this is just the sex stuff is getting totally out of hand as if the sexual revolution was all about exalting sex. No, it's not. It's about debasing sex so that it's not anything special. And so now our sex bodies um, are we're literally sterilizing kids and sewing up vaginas and cutting off penises um, and flattening them out in the case of, of nullification surgery. I mean, I don't know how you get more anti-sex than that. And I think that's honestly, that's what we're really dealing with. This is an anti-human, anti-body, anti-sex ideology. And, and it strikes me that the people who uh, might be experiencing this have a terrible self-loathing self mm. um, that is expressing in this particular way. Uh, and and it it seems similar to me. And tell me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. To something like anorexia. Oh, absolutely. But, but yet, when when you have an anorexic girl, which is normally the case presenting, you don't say, "By gosh, you know what? You really are fat." Yeah, you really are fat. You must have just you're a fat girl in a, in a skinny girl's body, and so let's get you some liposuction or something like that. We'd never do that, right? It's insane. But it's exactly the same logic when it comes to the gender stuff. And you said the kind of self harm. This is quite common. In fact, I will never forget a, a picture. You know, these a lot of these kids that get so called top surgery, where the girls that get their breasts removed for these purposes. Um, will take pictures of themselves and post them on, uh, on on Instagram and places like that. I'll never forget a picture that was presented, I think, by the gender clinic, was posting these as if it was a hair salon and they're showing new hairstyles. And the girl has this, you know, has this scar horizontally across her chest. And then her arms have all these scars. It's clear that she had been cutting herself probably for years beforehand. And no clinician made the connection. No doubt they said, well, she's cutting herself because she's gender dysphoric and we're going to fix it by what? By cutting her breasts off. I mean, honestly, I, I pray that 10 years from now we look back on this and say, that was insane. Uh, the worst case scenario would be one in which we actually get used to this. Yeah. And, and it'll go from uh, beyond that to people with other conditions such as uh, body identity integrity yep. disorder, where people obsess about being an amputee or being disabled. And you're already beginning to see some uh, advocacy. Well, the best way to treat that would be to cut off their healthy arm. Yeah. And, and you also see that condition now being called transable. And yes. I think you understand why that might be. Yes. The, the, you said something earlier, and I wanted to focus on this uh, just a little bit more. I, I see this whole issue as really civilization destroying stuff mm-hmm. because it represents the triumph of the subjective over the objective. Yes. You can't have a stable society based on feelings, which is what we're talking about, because emotions are ephemeral. And what I may feel today and think today, I might not tomorrow. And the detransitioners were the people who thought who were born one sex, thought they were another, then went back, kind of proved that point, doesn't it? So how do we have a stable society if everything is based on emotion and feelings? We can't have a stable society if everything is based on emotions, because what society is about is what sort of publicly uh, manifest between us. And so, I mean, a perfect example of this would be prisons. So we put women in prisons together and don't put men in there, uh, not based upon anyone's subjective gender identity, but because first of all, um, men and women have different body parts. Men can (laughs) impregnate women. Okay. I hate to be this obvious, right? But this is the era in which we live. And also because men are men, they have more testosterone. They're more aggressive. 
And so the rapes almost all happen from male to female and not from female to male. And so even if a man, let's just assume he really thinks he's a woman and he still has male body parts, he's still a male. He's still got testosterone in him and he's a criminal and you stick him in a prison, you're going to be violating grotesque violations of the rights of those women prisoners. Um, this, this idea that their internal mental state should be determinative in this case, it's really absurd. You, you can't ultimately uh, have laws or have rules or have procedures if everyone can just sort of declare that there's something that they manifestly are not. You just can't do this for a while. That's why I'm ultimately optimistic that this thing destroys itself because it, it, it just can't possibly not destroy itself. And, you, and in the meantime, though, uh, you're seeing uh, women have been raped in oh, prison absolutely. by their, quote, female co-inmates, close quote. Yep. Uh, you see um, uh, in sports venues, um, biological men able to invade female locker rooms and showers. Teenage girls are supposed to put up with teenage boys who are physically intact. Uh, and mm -hmm. yet they're the ones who are, who are supposed to be acquiescing in uh, allowing that person to express uh, that person's uh, gender identity. And, and and what's really remarkable is the very people who used to claim to be the strongest feminists and believers in protecting, you know, women's equality are the ones who are actually threat, um, supporting this kind of threat to female spaces and female safety. That's what's so odd about this is that, I mean, you have both, you have gender critical feminists, so-called radical feminists who are fighting on behalf of women because women are a real thing. But then you've got lots of women on the other hot side pushing this. I, I can tell you, anyone that you talk to that's involved in this fight will tell you the most hostile people very often are other women who you would think would be, they would all be on the same side, but that that's not the reality. I mean, these ideologies can uh, seize people so that they don't even notice what is right in front of them or literally the, the, the sort of uh, <laughs> interests of their own bodies and their own selves. You know, you and I, obviously, anybody listening to this interview know we disagree with all of this. Yeah. But <laughs> it's amazing how fast this agenda has hit the front burner and how the lexicon has shifted so dramatically, such as calling women individuals with uteruses. Mm -hmm. How did something as seemingly, at least from my perspective, yeah unhinged mm -hmm. becomes so mainstream well it happened first in the universities um and elite institutions in which people who end up in positions of power are trained this this is this is all a manifestation of a weird mix of kind of french postmodernism plus plus critical theory uh which is a kind of complicated brew of neo-marxism that's a kind of intellectual genealogy of this and that it's been working its way through the institution for years and so what for most americans just suddenly happened in 21 21 or 22 or if they were paying attention in 2015 when jenner ended up on the on the cover of a magazine that's when it kind of made a splash in the media this has been working its way through the institutions for years um, and they are just very very clever i'll give you one example of this wesley so when i first started at heritage the very first thing i had to do was go and look at a reconciliation bill which is this complicated thing the senate does 2600 pages and so my job 
with an assistant was to try to find ways in which, in this case, because the Democrats are in charge, they're writing the language, they're trying to sneak gender ideology in. And so I thought, well, we'll just do a word search for gender identity. Didn't get that much um, and thought, well, this is interesting. And then my research assistant stumbled upon a phrase, um, postpartum pregnant and lactating individuals. That, that awkward phrase. So let's do a word search for that. Oh, just absolutely everywhere. In fact, the only time the word female or woman or mother appeared is when it had to because it referred to some past piece of legislation like Violence Against Women's Act. So someone in some Senate, some Senate staffer in some office was able to systematically go through and make sure that the word woman never appeared when referring to women. That's how far gone this stuff is. And so we are absolutely playing pet catch up at this point. And, and there are even gay activists uh, such as mm-hmm. Andrew Sullivan yeah, uh, who, who are saying, wait a second, if we go down this path, it's the end of the concept of homosexuality. Absolutely. What does homosexual mean? It means homo same sex means sex. So same sex, right? So if you're a gay man, that means that you you are saying I'm attracted sexually and romantically to other men, which that is other males. Um, so that's what's funny is the LGB and the T actually are cross purposes on this key question of whether biological sex is a real category or not. Um, and the smart ones like Andrew Sullivan have figured this out that, okay, wait a second, this is a kind of a weird alliance. And then you've got uh, the uh, JK Rowlings who were, mm-hmm. you know, politically liberal. Yes. She's, she created the whole Harry Potter series, which uh, part of that book series has to do with accepting differences, right? Yes. And she is being, threatened because she says there's two sexes she has had her life threatened she has uh she was shunned at a harry potter uh, hollywood event by the stars who she made because she wrote these books because she doesn't accept this entire gender ideology that's exactly right i mean when she first sort of came out in the sense that she publicly challenged this i thought wow that is amazingly brave i wonder if this will last 24 or 48 hours. I just thought that she, the, the withering criticism, we've seen this happen before where a Hollywood person sort of gets, speaks out of turn and then, and then withers under criticism. Well, she did not do it. And so what's amazing is about this issue is it's allowed people to show their mettle, to, to show their moral courage. And I'm more than happy to say that everybody that's doing that's not on the right. In fact, some of the people on the left, honestly, look, I've got a safe job talking about this stuff. I don't have to worry about my livelihood. Uh, what do you do with people who their entire social support uh, disagrees with them? Um, J.K. Rowling is now being denounced by the actors that played her characters in these blockbuster movies and yet she stuck to her guns. That is moral courage. And I am so thankful for people like her um, because, you know, honestly, I mean, it's a sign that this is going to end up being a very complex alliance of people who really disagree on some other things. This wasn't true when you're you, not so true. There's a few atheist pro-lifers, for instance, and um, but like on the marriage debate, for instance, that tended to line up left, right. Um, in, on this debate, at the moment, it is almost purely partisan in that, that the Democratic Party is on one side and the Republicans, though kind of squeamish, are on the other. But in the culture at large, there are people on the left who think understand they have a stake in defending the reality of biology. There are atheists that believe that. There are lesbians that believe that. And I'm glad because we need absolutely everyone we can get. 
And, and also, you said something earlier, it, it, it validates my belief that in order to see what's going to go wrong in the future, you have to look at the professional journals. Mm-hmm. Because most of this stuff is imposed from the top down. And these these people, the bioethicists and the medical establishment, the professional um, uh, medical journals, they're not just, when they're dealing with these kinds of issues, they're not just arguing philosophy. They really intend to, to come to conclusions and push these uh, agendas and these policies into the society, which is what you said has been happening in this case. Absolutely. I mean, this is not, um, yeah, these are not just sort of abstract theories that don't find their way into practical reality. They're altering the language of regulations. They're altering the language of budgetary bills that you would think would be the dullest thing in the world. They are committed all the way down and they're committed to imposing this on us. And so, unfortunately, I mean, mostly you and I both have done a good bit of work on the ideological use of science. Well, there's an ideological use of uh, PR in science in which you have organizations claiming to speak for science. The American Academy of Pediatrics, for instance, claims that they're speaking for all something like 67,000 pediatricians in this country. Uh, it's a self-selected advocacy organization that publishes a journal called Pediatrics that's shamelessly ideological, uh, but they understand the cultural currency of claiming to speak for science. So they spend a whole lot of time setting organizations like this up. They give the appearance of science. Um, and, and honestly, on the right, we in conservatives, we tend not to um, to think in those really long-term strategic ways. So basically you're saying the experts aren't experts in the sense that we once thought of them, but they're uh, ideological uh, culture warriors. That's right. I mean, of course there are experts who, who know the data, but you can't figure out what the like the, what you want from an expert is to tell you the truth about the evidence that they know something about. Um, but you can't take an, a body like the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's, it's committee that issues statements about gender affirming care. You can't take that and mean that they have done that process and are just sort of reporting the facts, nor can you think that they represent the actual views of all those pediatricians. In fact, what they do is they represent themselves and the most of the pediatricians are afraid to speak out about it publicly because they know that their career is at risk. And why is the language we use in this discussion so important? This idea of if you don't use a prop, the pronoun that the uh, transgendered person selects, you're somehow being hateful. Or if you use what they call a dead name, meaning the original name that the uh, person had, that you're being hateful and bigoted. Why is the language the real, a real battlefield in this particular subject? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is because they want you to participate in this. And so um, as long as you can continue to use someone's old name, like if I were to say, I'm just quoting right here, if I were to say Bruce Jenner, I'm implying he's still a man, right? Or that there was this man, Bruce Jenner. Now, their claim is not clear. Are they saying that there was a Bruce Jenner that became Caitlin? Are they saying there was never a Bruce? Are they saying that Bruce died and Caitlin was born? I mean, they don't actually know, but the idea is that somehow he really is a female. Um, and to really get that to come off, you need everyone to participate in it. It doesn't work if a guy says he's really a girl, if everybody else continues to say, well, no, you're, you're a guy. Um, and so th- remember, this is always the, the sort of dilemma with postmodernism is first, first they want to relativize your own use of language and insist that language is infinitely malleable. 
Uh, and then once they've persuaded you of that, they want to enforce their absolute totalitarian uh, claims to the truth. Relativism only ever lasts about 15 minutes, and then it's replaced by somebody else's dogma. That's interesting. Are you saying that uh, when they force you to use their language, they're in a sense making you complicit with their agenda? Not only, yeah, first they make you complicit. Um, and then, because remember, their view of things is that, my view of things is that, well, there's a world out there and what we want to do is develop language and theories that do, that do their best to approximate the world and to cut it at its proper joints. Well, if you think everything is really just a language game, that we don't really have access to an external reality, um, then if you can change the language everyone uses, you've effectively changed reality. And so that's why they are so draconian about enforcing language is that they think, well, language is, that's really kind of all we have. And so if we can get everyone to reform their language, we will have in effect kind of created the, the, the reality utopia uh, that we believe. Now, if there's a reality out there apart from our language, this is obviously um, destined for failure. But from their perspective, they have uh, a much more skeptical view about external reality and a much more uh, sanguine view about the power of language, I think. My sense of this is I certainly have an obligation to be respectful to everybody. Sure. But they don't have the right to make me be irrational. That's right. They don't have, no one has the right to make you uh, be irrational and no one has the right to make you say something you think is false. And so look, if I, I'm not going to go out of my way to call somebody by their former masculine male name or whatever, if they've changed their name, I am absolutely not going to use incorrect pronouns though. I'll just avoid it. Um, and I think that's really the, that's the line in the sand that we need to draw because the moment you start altering your language and are willing to fudge on reality, in some ways, that's the hook in the in the mouth. They've they've already got you. Yeah, they really got you if they can do this to kids. If they can break. He who defines down. the terms wins the debate. That's that's pretty yeah, basic wins stuff. the debate. And if you do it to kids, he who defines the terms creates the mental structures, builds the neural pathways. That's why you get a five-year-old doesn't have a stable sense of male and female yet. You dis disorder that completely, blow it up, sexualize them, and then give them new conceptual categories. You can see that's, why that's uh, interesting because I was going to ask you why are children a particular risk? And what you're saying is that they don't yet have um, the brain development or the the thought process development to be able to understand this. And so they're very persuadable into a different approach. Absolutely. I mean, you can, most people can remember I, as a kid, you know, when kids are little, it's not easy to tell boys and girls. We haven't been through puberty yet. And I know when I was five or six, there was a boy, this was the seventies and boys often had long hair. And I wasn't sure he was in my school. I couldn't tell if he was a boy or a girl. And then it turns out he was in a Cub Scout's meeting and it, that was boys so i thought oh okay that's a boy right but you you're doing this at that age where you're trying to divide up the world and that's the thing you normally learn is that well they're adults and kids and there are boys and girls well you get a gender unicorn and drag queen story hour and tell kids that some people can be boys some people can be girls some can be both neither or somewhere in between that's a quote from a kindergarten book um you you help create new conceptual categories you build neural pathways in their minds they wouldn't have otherwise and they see reality through gender ideology. I mean, the people on the other side understand this perfectly well. You used a term um, that I'm not too familiar with, which is the unicorn. Yes. 
The gender unicorn, so there are these two diagrams. Uh, anyone listening can just pull these up. So there's the genderbred person, which is a diagram used to explain gender ideology to children. And it divides people up into their expression, their identity, their biological sex, and their orientation or attraction. But it had the category biological sex in it, so it was problematic for gender ideologues. A, a, a better one from their view is the gender unicorn, which uses not a gingerbread man looking character, but a androgynous kind of pudgy purple unicorn. Um, and rather than sex, it has sex assigned at birth. So it's thoroughly gotten rid of biological sex. And these are designed for five and six year old kids. These are catechetical tools of gender ideology that are brought into classrooms all around this country, right under parents' noses who don't realize what's happening to their children, unfortunately. I'm going to get into the schools in a second, but it strikes me that's almost a self-own because a unicorn's a mythical creature. It seems and so like they're basically using right? a mythical creature to sell a myth. But so here's what's going on, right? To sell a myth, uh, it's a purple unicorn it, rather than a brain. So the gingerbread person, at least his identity is attached to a brain. There's no brain with the unicorn. There is just a thought bubble of a rainbow. So you notice that we've completely dematerialized the gender identity at this point. It's just this thought, not even attached to a brain. But, okay, why the unicorn? Because you're right, it's mythological. But there's a weird kind of childhood fetish in a lot of this stuff in which you want things to appear childish. Um, and so that appeals. And also it's a, it's a purple unicorn. But that is the sort of irony is that it's an entirely mythical creature. And when I was a kid, there was a song called Purple People Eater, and I think that's what the unicorn is. <laughs> yes, alas. Yeah, alas. Yeah. What's the role of social media in all of this? It is the massive magnifier and amplifier. Now, uh, I think technology, you know, can be used for good or ill. I benefit from Twitter, frankly, because I curate it and learn lots of stuff. But kids, especially kids whose brains are not well formed, are being bombarded with these things, especially on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. Children should not be on TikTok, honestly. I'm perfectly happy saying that um, because a lot of kids get these ideas. We think it may be as high as 65% of kids with gender dysphoria initially get these ideas from a so-called influencer on social media. These are people that can, they can curate their life so that it looks sunny and happy and it's properly edited and, and, and recorded so that they think, oh, wow, you know, I'm going through this gender transition procedure and my life is uh, finally fulfilled and kids get this in their heads. Well, then if it's reinforced at school and they can get a, 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 an appointment with a doctor who will tell them, yeah, we could actually get you on, on this treatment, then you see how it's reinforced. So you get it both from the sort of authority figures in schools and doctors, and then you get it from above uh, by these social media influencers. And then just all you do is you add a couple of years where kids are locked up at home with their screens and can't go out, which is what happened uh, during the COVID lockdowns, and you have got a formula for disaster, unfortunately. So you're saying that the so the the um, social media is almost like a hyper peer peer pressure situation. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, we are designed um, to to deal with you know for most of human history, people were dealing with people face to face or in near terms. Even cities were places you could get in a day. Now we are able to simultaneously interact with people around the world at roughly the speed of light, um, and I think that we're not well adapted to that so that if you're not really 
properly trained uh, and discerning, it's really easy to be captured by this. And so I th that's why I think this is sort of the mother of all social contagions. It wouldn't have been possible uh, if it weren't for this technology that's enabled it. What is so-called conversion therapy and why has it been outlawed? Well, and so initially conversion therapy was supposedly, I, I'm not going to pass judgment on this idea that when you're dealing with same-sex attraction, you could be converted out of it. So a man that's attracted sexually to men could somehow be converted either by a religious experience or some kind of therapy and actually get over it, right? So not have same-sex attraction. And so then there, so some of that stuff was probably unsavory, but you know, that, let's sort of set that aside. Um that was used because there were bans against that type of so-called conversion therapy. And so that term, because it's a term of disrepute, is now getting applied simply to psychotherapy that tries to help children become comfortable with their bodies. So imagine this, Wesley. So conversion therapy now is, it's not converting someone's body to its opposite sex. No, that's called gender-affirming care. Conversion therapy is where you would just counsel and care for a child to help them to become comfortable with their sex bodies. That's weirdly now called conversion therapy, and states have started to ban it. What that would mean is that a doctor that uh, wanted to do that, wanted to treat a child in one of those states, uh, rather try to help a girl become comfortable with their bodies, uh, you end up getting brought up and maybe lose your license. That's, that's a real thing in many states in the U.S. now. So you're saying that mental health professionals uh, are not allowed to even help a child explore whether, in fact, they really do have these feelings in a legitimate sense? Exactly. In the states where you have these so-called conversion therapy bans. And so it varies from state to state. But in states that have it, it's very difficult for a therapist to maneuver in such a way as to do that. They're strongly pressured uh, toward a so-called affirmative-only approach. And by affirmative, that means affirming whatever the child's reported gender identity is, even if it's triangle or whatever. So that gets us back to the uh, anorexic young woman. Mm -hmm. uh, Doc, I'm fat. Oh, yes, of course you are. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that is sort of perfectly analogous. If you compare that, that's the equivalent of telling a child, oh, okay, well, you look like a girl, but um, you're really a eunuch. Okay. Or you're really a boy. Really? So, I mean, that's how they say really. So in other words, the real thing is the internal subjective state of mind. It's not their body. It's not the thing that anyone can investigate. So under gender affirming care, we've got social affirmation, which mm -hmm. is using uh, pronouns, etc. That's right. So it usually takes place in school. So change of names, change of pronouns, change of bathrooms and locker rooms. That's social transition, which is really a psychosocial intervention. And then there's medical affirming care, which uh, would be the puberty blockers and the hormones. That's right. So puberty blockers, if the child is is young enough, so before so-called Tanner stage two of puberty, if they're at that stage, you can actually basically freeze in place their development. Um, and then after that, you get cross-sex hormones, testosterone for, for girls, uh, estrogen and uh, some other things for boys. And then finally, surgery, which for girls will start usually with chest surgery, top surgery, and then can progress to uh, actual removal of genitalia and fashioning of the opposite sex genitalia. How come this isn't deemed human experimentation? Because these um, hormones and these um, puberty blockers, they were not designed for this purpose. No, that's right. In fact, the, the puberty blockers, the primary one is called Lupron. It's FDA-approved 
for the treatment of prostate cancer. In other words, for men, for older men, that's what it was approved for. But then it's used off-label for these things. Now, the thing is, is that there are lots of drugs that are used off-label, maybe as much as half, um, based upon clinical experience. But in this case, we've just suddenly decided we're going to do this. And the data is very, very thin, uh, first of all, for the safety of this use and also for its actual efficacy, except unless the only efficacy you care about is, well, we stopped the puberty temporarily, may mess up their bone development or something else. Um, and so it clearly is experimental. The reason it's not deemed illicitly experimental is, again, because these medical organizations are telling us that this is the proper standard of care. And so um, who's going to challenge them? I mean, judges aren't going to do that. And if state legislatures try to challenge them, they're, they're likely to get shot down too. And and if you stand against what the uh, these uh, medical organizations are um, asserting and you're a medical professional, you actually th- are threatened with loss of uh, peer uh, acknowledgement or peer respect and perhaps even um, uh, discipline. Absolutely. Uh, Depending on the field you're in and the state you're in, you could lose your license to practice. Uh, You could be shunned. Uh, If you're an academic that's publishing, you could absolutely lose your position or at least lose your ability to actually publish your work. And so every physician and every academic knows this kind of pressure they don't have there's not a rule book anywhere we all we learn this uh very good at sensing okay where where the lines are that that must not be crossed and that's what's been very clearly communicated on this issue and and the the people who say well why don't we trust the experts are clueless because we understand (laughs) that uh, what was once called expertise uh has devolved into something that isn't the same thing as it once was no, absolutely. And that's, I'm always careful to say, look, I'm not saying don't trust any experts. I'm saying many of the people claiming to be experts are, in fact, ideological shills. Um, they may know enough to, to trick you, but if you know enough to be able to actually look at the data they claim to be speaking for, you'll notice that there's a massive chasm between what they're saying and what the, the evidence actually says. I've read stories of some schools and teachers promoting gender theory in schools and hiding from parents uh, when a child is actually experiencing this gender dysphoria, um, which seems to me to be a usurpation, to say the least, of uh, the parental role. Is, is this just anecdotal or is there real evidence that this is happening? Oh, we know it's happening. I mean, there are lawsuits. January Littlejohn in Tallahassee, Florida, for instance, who's, I think her case is still working its way through the courts. She had a teenage girl um, and they had socially transitioned her at school, had not told January or her husband about it. They found out about it. The school tries to deny it. They'll often say, well, that's policy. And in many states, it actually does seem to be policy that states are not to tell parents. That's a direct affront against the rights of parents to be the primary ones who, who raise their children. Now, in Florida, Florida, who the state that does almost everything right, passed a law last year, the Parental Rights and Education Bill, that, ins- that requires uh, transparency, accountability in, in school classrooms. It also sets up a private right of action so parents can sue their, school, sue their school districts if schools do this. But this is happening in all sorts of places all around the country. Um, it sounds crazy. I understand that. But it doesn't take very long if you do the research to find out it's happening in a lot of places, unfortunately. We're recording this interview on November 14th, uh, mm-hmm. t- 2022. Uh, And there's actually a story in today's New York Times that is beginning to cast some shade on the propriety of using puberty blockers 
We're also seeing the breaks on gender-affirming care in, in places like the United Kingdom, France, yes, Sweden, Finland, which are not exactly Bible Belt countries. No. Uh, do you think we've seen the peak of this moral panic? I think we've, well, we've seen the outrage that there is a peak in Europe, uh, in part because there's ironies here. So notice that every one of those countries has a kind of highly centralized um, healthcare system. So just take the UK and their national health service. They had one major pediatric gender clinic called the Tavistock Clinic. Uh, it was un- is undergoing a review by some uh, expert called Hillary Cass, who noticed, okay, there's not a lot of good evidence that this is helping kids. The basis for this treatment is really thin. And then the Tavistock Clinic and National Health Service were noticing orders of magnitude increases in the number of kids showing up with this, uh, wanting these treatments. Well, that gets expensive at some point. And so they actually had an economic incentive to say, okay, wait, let's make sure that this makes sense. And when they did it, they realized, okay, this is crazy. We've got to stop doing this. And so the NHS in the UK has stopped. It's, it's now much more restricted, as you said, in places like like France, Belgium, and especially Sweden and Finland. These are countries that were ahead of us. And so in some ways, they've seen more than we have. The U.S., though, is it's absolutely the Wild West in which you have hundreds of Planned Parenthoods uh, clinics passing out cross-sex hormones to teenagers. You've got probably over 100 pediatric gender clinics, depending upon how you count it, all around the country weird kind of um, pastiches of laws and regulations. And so if you want to know where the experiment's being conducted on whose kids, it's right here in the good old US of A. My hope is that very soon we will follow the lead of some countries like the, like do the we, United Kingdom. Do we know how many uh, children have uh, kind of identified themselves as being on the spectrum? Well, you mean so we know that a significant percentage of the kids who uh, report these symptoms of gender dysphoria are also on the the autism spectrum, and in particular, girls. So this is especially a problem with girls who are not, you know, they're less likely than boys to be autistic. But of uh, lots and lots of the girls that are having gender dysphoria are on the spectrum. And again, for a lot of these kids, they're deeply influenced by social media and video. That that's in some ways it's a core comorbidity and the clinicians on the other side will say well that's you know this this will help them with that whereas when i look at that i say okay wait uh maybe that is causing them to be highly influenced by this thing and they're in, more in fact in the, in the uk there was a scandal that uh there was uh like more than a hundred autistic kids mm-hmm. had kind of been persuaded that they were uh, uh gender non-conforming whatever that yeah. term might be and that's what I think began to raise some eyebrows over in the UK. And this uh, this clinic that you you addressed in the UK uh, was shut down because it was yes. not safe. That's right. Uh, and as, as facing lawsuits, which makes me think, uh, based on what you said about that school, that perhaps the way out of this morass will be the trial lawyers if they start smelling money in the water. Yes. In fact, I've thought that, Wesley, since I started this, that if this doesn't end in any other way, it ends with mass, massive class action lawsuits. I already know of a law firm that has started specifically to try these cases. The problem is that many of these states, there's not necessarily a private right of action um, that, for doing this. The statute of limitations peters out. And so it's actually important that we have laws that extend the statute of limitations and, and confer on people a private right of action. Because the reality is, 
you know, a lot of kids that are doing this at 16 may not realize what a mistake it was until they're 25 or 30. They need to have legal recourse then. And right now in a lot of the states, the laws are just configured in a way that's going to make that actually hard to do. In fact, it makes me remember the uh, a different moral panic of a couple of decades ago, the recovered memory syndrome. Absolutely. Where people were convinced that they had forgotten and buried these uh, tales of their parents uh, sexually abusing them. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was all power of suggestion. Yeah, that's what's so, I mean, we go through this kind of stuff every couple of decades. I mean, that's that's one that it, for those of us that are old enough, it's in our recent memory. It was just absolutely everywhere. And then we realized, okay, this is actually crazy. But can you imagine that the power of suggestion would be so strong that kids would uh, claim that their parents had grotesquely abused them when they hadn't? And I think sometimes that's sort of hard for us to imagine that a child could be so influence that a girl could come to believe that she's a boy so strongly that she would have body parts removed. But I'm sorry, we have lots of data that people can be suggested in this way and be influenced in this way. Uh, We're almost out of time. um, But I do want to ask you, if a child tells their parents that they believe they're transgender, Mm non-binary, non-conforming, whatever it might be, what should the parents do? Well, the parents, first of all, need to do research. Go to the uh, Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. It's segm.org, I think. Get the data. Do not fall for this cliched claim that the only way to prevent a child from committing suicide uh, is to get them on the so-called affirmation pathway. That's not true. We're dealing with a social hysteria that's seized, unfortunately, many in the medical community. And find a therapist in your area that understands these things. Ask the tough questions and just don't allow yourself to be buffaloed. You've got a moral intuition. If you have a daughter, you know you have a daughter. If you have a son, you know you have a son. Do not let some supposed expert talk you out of this most basic thing that you actually know. Um, There is this uh, idea that if we don't socially transition at least or even medically transition children, they'll commit suicide. You just brought that up. Yep. Is there any data to show that there's actually a reduction in suicide ideation with these interventions? No. I mean, so there are basically three studies, uh, two by a guy named Jack Turbin, who's an ideologue on this, um, published, of course, by Pediatrics at the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, This is, I mean, the thinnest possible data, lack of control group, convenience samples based upon surveys given out in ideological contexts in which you have kids sort of reporting very short after the fact. And so anybody knows statistics, looks at these these papers is going to know the evidence for this was always wafer thin. The reality is at the moment, we don't have a lot of data one way or the other. We do know that this population of people is much more likely to commit suicide. Uh, There is no evidence that gender-affirming care is going to dramatically reduce the rate of suicide of these populations, but that does, we do need to focus on them and have compassion on them because they are generally much more likely uh, to commit suicide, and so we have to keep that in mind. But, you know, imagine if this was a different scenario, Wesley. Imagine if we said, well, you know, we have discovered that if you pour boiling water on people's bodies, chop off their legs, and gouge out their eyes, they'll be less likely to commit suicide. Even if that were true, would we say that's a good standard of care? No, we'd say, well, let's keep looking for something that's a little less 
disastrous. But in this case, we're talking about things in which we sterilize kids, even if it were true that it slightly reduced their rate of suicide. It wouldn't mean that this was a good thing to do. It would mean we need to find an alternative. As it is, there's not even any good evidence that it actually helps. And and there's still evidence also that often, whether adults or children, have gone through this, quote, transition, close quote, that doesn't uh, actually provide the relief from their mental distress that they were hoped for in many cases. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's so sad about it. So very often when people first start going through this, a girl takes testosterone, there will be a sense of euphoria. Testosterone does that. So a teenage girl take it all of a sudden she feels more aggressive she feels stronger her body changes in ways that she likes she gets leaner and more muscular Um, but then she keeps at it and it starts doing really bad things to her brain and really bad things to her body and to her uterus and to her ovaries and so they got to get over the kind of initial euphoria and it can be the same thing with these transition procedures is sometimes people will feel this initial idea just based upon the fact that they want to be helped right and so they are hopeful uh, but then reality eventually sets in and it turns out all of their psychological comorbidities are still there it's just that now they're missing body parts they had before <laughs> that's just awful mm. well this has been really helpful to me jay to, to try to understand the uh, <laughs> surreal i mean i feel like i'm alice through the looking glass right yeah, the surreal world of of gender ideology and, and and the real world consequences that our children and also adults face from uh, pursuing this idea. Plus, I think the a loss of trust in our institutions, uh, the um, the politicization of um, medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, very distressing side effects of this social contagion or moral panic. What next for Jay Richards? Honestly, I am planning to spend 2023 focusing on trying to bring more and more people together that are fighting this so that we can all be rolling in the same direction. Unfortunately, uh, lots of us, when we're working on things, people are not (laughs) necessarily working together. I think it's crucial on this that we build as large a coalition as we can. And then also uh, focusing on a handful of states that I think can do something really helpful. So states like Florida, which uh, they're, they're, Board of Health and now their Board of Medicine uh, has issued reports uh, reporting the best the best data on this that this is not the proper standard of care. That's the right way to for states to handle this. And so, in states that are like Florida, where you have the right leadership, uh, I would like to see a few others actually do this through their health bureaucracy. And then, once that happens, legislators can take this up. I think it's honestly it's a mistake for legislators to try to prohibit these procedures um, completely independently of their state health apparatus unless they simply have to because they've just the health folks are just completely gone but ideally what you want what we want to have happen is there be a battle between maybe the federal government and half a dozen states over the status of the science and the evidence i think when that's the when the debate is framed in that way i think the right side's going to win yeah and and there's also going to be a um a disparity because California, for example, has declared itself a, a transgender affirming care sanctuary state. Yeah. So that will actually um, protect parents who even kidnap their child uh, yeah. to get these procedures from uh, lawful custody orders in other states. And I think you're going to end up seeing um, two approaches and you'll be able to see 
which one is actually protecting children and which one is hurting children. That's right. I mean, it's really sad, but we're this is going to be Brandeis's mother of all laboratories of democracy, and uh, we're going to be able to compare these different states um, with respect to the evidence and the well-being of children. I wish it didn't have it to happen that way, but um, my, my hope as a policy analyst is that we can just do everything we can to to limit the um, the collateral damage, if you will. Yeah, unfortunately, I think in the meantime, a lot of people are going to be hurt mm-hmm. and some are going to have their lives permanently disfigured. Unfortunately, I think that's true, but I, let's do everything we can to, to limit the numbers. Jay, thank you very much for being with me. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you again. Thanks so much, Wesley. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.